Hi, I'm Wendy Dean. And I'm Simon Talbot. And this is Moral Matters. So today's episode is speaking with Michael Fedor. Michael's the Vice President of Advancement and Strategic Initiatives at Central Penn College. He's been a classroom teacher, he's been an entrepreneur, a local elected official, he served in leadership in the Pennsylvania State Treasury. He's also a father uh, and a husband, a father of three children. And I met Michael here in my local area, and we got talking because his wife had a critical illness. It was a powerful story when he told it the first time, and it had, you know, it reminded me that we've talked so far a lot about what our physicians' experiences are with moral injury, but this episode really focuses on how moral injury impacts our patients and their families. Right. And I think his uh, story is even more relevant to people during the COVID crisis, um, where, where people have family members who are critically ill, and we're having to make very challenging decisions, which Michael talks about in this episode. Yeah, even though his his wife wasn't ill with COVID, it, it really speaks to what's happening right now with the third COVID surge on its way. We should also mention that this episode is a conversation about a critical illness during and immediately after childbirth. It gets pretty intense at times, so you might want to consider when and how you listen to it. Let's pick up the conversation with Michael. Well, Michael, welcome and thank you. Um, why don't you start by telling us a little bit about, about your story and, and your family situation? Well, Simon and Wendy, thanks for having me on. It's a pleasure to be joining you today. And um, yeah, I'd be happy to talk about, you know, you guys had mentioned in the intro there, the role of father and husband, and I uh, say that those are my two most important and my two most challenging roles, uh, and also the ones from which I derive the greatest happiness, right? So that's why we do them. Uh, and that's part of the reason I'm joining you today to talk on this podcast a little bit about that journey into fatherhood, and even as a husband, something I experienced in 2017. So I just want to take you briefly back to that time period. My wife and I had been married at that point 13 years. We had two children, Jackson, who uh, at the time was going on eight, and uh, Parker uh, going on seven. Uh, and we watched some home movies and somehow convinced ourselves we're going to do a third go-round at parenthood. Um, maybe part of us were, you know, w- wishing for the girl on the third try. Maybe partially it was just to try to keep us young. Uh, but uh, so we, we got pregnant. Uh, we're going through the whole journey. The kids were excited to be big brothers. But due date comes and baby doesn't come. And so we start trying, you know, home remedies, wives' tale strategies to get the baby to deliver naturally. We went for walks. I made Serena eat a dozen pretty hot wings at my favorite wing place down the road. And I'm sure she loved that. Uh, she doesn't let me live that one down. <laughs> but that that didn't work. Uh, and uh, so we then got back into the OBGYN's office, and we got scheduled for an induction. And, um, you know, this is the beginning of a pretty tra- uh, traumatic tale that spans September 1st through October 5th. Uh, in terms of direct interaction with the healthcare system in our, in our area, and uh, for me, is the single most traumatic series of events in my lifetime. I'd never want to experience anything nearly as traumatic ever again. Um, and at moments, there were times that 
I was facing the potential loss of both my wife and my baby at the same time, same day, same hour, uh, at times different days, different hours, because they were both in intensive care for weeks until we could get uh, get them stabilized. But it taught me a lot about resilience and courage. It also showed me some of the beautiful people who work in healthcare and trying to do good for patients and their families, and then also some of the systemic problems we have within healthcare delivery in the United States that um, unfortunately doesn't put patients first all the time and makes it very challenging to navigate. We've talked a lot about this, you and I, about, about how physicians may want to do the right thing, but they have their hands tied by some of the frameworks of healthcare. And I think when you and I have talked about this in the past, you've, you've felt like that resonates with you in your experience as a patient advocate. And I wonder if you could tell us what your experience was as someone who came in without a clinical background, but with another powerful background, which was organizing, and how you, how you thought about what the healthcare system needed and what your wife needed from the healthcare system and then how you got it. Yeah, I think that the mistake we made going into the circumstance was assuming that um, we knew everything we needed to know, or if we didn't know it, someone was going to tell it to us directly. And that was not the case. Um, some very critical uh, decisions were made that I would say full perspective information was not presented in a way that may have made us make a different decision early on. And I learned in organizing uh, early on, you don't ever let the other side, whether that's the boss or the opponent, be in control of all the information. It's not how you win. You have to have equal access to information and be able to derive your own conclusions from it. And one of the first mistakes that we made was, well, believing that induction alone was the right course of action for a woman who was 38 years old, 37 years old, and a week overdue at this point on September 1st, and a baby who, if they had really been honest about the measurements, was an almost 10-pound child at that point. Um, they were making a lot of really poor assumptions based on who knows what the assumptions were based on. Cost? What does it make most sense to do? Um, had I known what I know now, I would have been insisting on just the C-section from that moment. So let me summarize some events here, because Serena's hospitalization was long and complex, and it's really easy to get caught up in the details. She went into the hospital, ironically, just before Labor Day in September 2017. She and Michael had every reason to think that she would have a normal delivery and they'd be home before the holiday was over. But every pregnancy and delivery is risky. Serena's labor went as expected for several hours, but at one o'clock in the morning, all hell broke loose. She was whisked off for an emergency cesarean section and Michael could not go into the operating room. As he waited in the hallway, he saw Luke, his newborn son, on a gurney being rushed to the newborn intensive care unit, where they would help him breathe and cool his body and his brain to help him heal from his difficult delivery. An hour went by, then three, and Michael had no word about Serena. It was five o'clock in the morning, four hours after she went into the operating room, when the obstetrician told Michael that his wife and son were both alive, but critically ill. Serena had lost a third of her blood volume, to save her life, they'd had to do an emergency hysterectomy. She was in the intensive care unit, but they would need to do more surgery. They'd needed to pause to try to stabilize her. 
For days, Michael ran the stairs between his wife's room in the intensive care unit and the neonatal intensive care unit, one floor up, where Luke was in a controlled coma. Serena had four more procedures over the holiday weekend, each one of them touch and go. Each time, Michael wondered whether she would make it. Each time, he hoped that the team would find him in the waiting room after the surgery and say, okay, we think she's out of the woods now. But the conversation after the fourth surgery was a tough one. And we'll go back to him for that. To be there. And uh, she came out of that surgery. And it was that morning, which was Labor Day morning, they told me, we're out of surgical options now. We have done everything that we can for your wife surgically. If anything's going to save her life, it's going to be medicine. Um, we have tried everything we knew how to try. And they were praying and hoping that they could get her to clot her blood enough to be able to take hold and back get back to life. Now, mind you, like she's on kind of the blood pressure medicines that would be killing you know anybody else, but they're pumping her through this blood pressure medicine to keep her alive and keep her blood pressure up enough so that she can continue to fight to live. And um, it just was terrifying. It, it was more um, than I could. I never, ever, ever believed just trying to deliver a baby that you could end up in that kind of danger. Right. And that that kind of risk would be before you. And that you are now you know, just thrust into trying to understand why would this be happening to her? And this medical terminology is flying over top of you. And <laughs> so in the midst of all that, it, it sounds like you found yourself caught between trying to manage her medical care and to understand how to make all of the decisions you needed to give what you believed was informed consent. But also, where was the room to be her husband and her family? You know, the most um, heartbreaking part of all of that was when every time I had to go see her in her hospital room, I could never hold her. I could never hug her. Couldn't, like, lay down in bed with her. Right. It was really hard to be her family when you were spending so much time trying to keep up with the flood of information you were being given every day and trying to learn the language of medicine enough to speak with the experts. Yeah. So um, bouncing hour to hour between like very high ranking doctors, the best of the best. And I got to say that for what the hospital did. Best of the best are coming in in this network and contractors they work with to help provide and manage her care. And Dr. Safa Farzan was amazing. He became a lifelong friend now, but he was the doctor that was there from the minute that she was admitted into the the ICU floor to um, until her discharge. And the nurses would say to me, you know, when you leave to go talk to your family or when you leave to go get dinner, he's in here <laughs> watching her. Mm-hmm. He didn't want her to die. And her story started getting around the hospital. Uh, she was a young mother, had delivered a baby. The baby was clinging to life. And she needed more blood products than anyone they had ever seen. She ended up getting over more than 220 units of blood products Wow! in uh, 14 days. Uh, they're talking about, like, battlefield blood product levels at, like, 50 units. And right. there's, I was reading, like, record-breaking people in 
Great Britain who had gotten like 500 units or 150 units. And that's that's a record you don't want to break. Yes, exactly. It's not good when you're breaking records there. Not at all. They always said that to me. And, you know, so here's a situation where it never crossed my mind that the blood banks or the hospitals could cut us off on blood. Hmm. But I later heard stories that there were people who said, there's no way we're stopping. You might say you're stopping, but I'm still ordering that blood and we're still pumping it into this lady because she's not dead yet. By the time we got to the 4th of September, and we were out of surgical options, they wanted to try a drug called Nova 7. They're like, she's going to bleed to death this afternoon if we don't try something. So we need to figure out where we can get Nova 7 from. Now, I was in government affairs and government relations at that point, and I'm contacting my employer, and I'm telling them what's going on because I'm off of work. And... and they, we did this briefing at 9 a.m., and Dr. Farzan said to me, Michael, this is your wife's last option. And I said, well, tell me, like, how slim are the chances that Nova 7 helps her? He's now in tears, doctors in tears, saying they're slimmer than slim, Michael. This is, this is literally, like, last chance, and it's a really low chance this is going to be it. So... Um, they order doses, but they discover that the nearest doses are in Boston. So I get on the phone with my company, and my company's like, okay, Michael, we know the governor. We can call the governor of Massachusetts. We can get an escort. We can get it on an airplane. Can you call the governor of Pennsylvania? Because I know the governor. Can we, can we get this stuff to the hospital as quickly as possible? So then um, my boss, my former boss, um, at the time says, well, his, his daughter was aware that the Hershey Center was a trauma center and that they would have had Nova 7 on supply. So I go back into the doctor's office and I say, I want you to call Hershey and I want you to find out if they have any Nova 7. Can they get it over? Turns out they did. So again, now in the healthcare system, you've got hospitals and networks that don't talk enough to know who has what to save lives in any given time. And we were going to wait till 8 o'clock that night, but because we were able to get a hold of Hershey, we had the first dose in her by 1 p.m. that afternoon. And after the third dose, her body was starting to clot. We saw for the first time, two days after she got the first doses, she didn't grow. She didn't get any worse. And I remember standing with Safa in her room that morning at 7 o'clock. We both had a cup of coffee, and he, and, and he said, Michael, she didn't get any worse today didn't get any better. And I said, but I'll take not any worse. Right. That's a win today. And we were slowly trying to claw back from that position. You know, I find it so interesting that y- you were outside of the healthcare system and because of the connections that you had and the network that you had from work, you were able to access medication for your wife that you might not have been able to get otherwise. Yeah. Now, the hospital that your wife was in was 30 or 45 minutes from the hospital where you got the Nova 7? Yep. So, do you have any understanding of, of what was the challenge? No, I, I, and that's what I can't quite, I still have trouble wrapping my head around at times the disparate networks and communications that exist among and between these systems. Because as a lay person, you're standing on the outside, that's a hospital, that's a hospital. All right? So if I go there and something happens to me and that hospital needs to help us, but in reality, they're 
they are in competition with one another. They are in different models. There's there's lots of things happening in this industry right now, and there seems to be a bit of a detente, but they don't always play nice, and um, a lot of competition. And it just begs the question, is that truly delivering the best possible care? If you have drugs available at a hospital next door and the people trying to treat patients in the first hospital don't even know they're there, and are there people who are losing their life or losing some moments of potential hope because they're not communicating, they're not cooperating. We wouldn't expect that in any other system. We definitely have to do better in healthcare. Yeah, so I think that's a really interesting thought. There, there are a couple things. Um, you know, you used some really powerful techniques in a, from your other world that um, helped when you didn't understand healthcare, right? That I, that I think may help some of the folks who are struggling in healthcare to get what they need for their patients. So I'd love for you to talk about that. But first, can you tell us how they're doing now? How are Luke and Serena? So um, number one, they're, they're amazing. They're alive and healthy. Um, it takes years for your body to get back to a sense where you feel normal again. And it can be a long journey for the patient emotionally and physically. So is she, is she in the shape of her life? No. No, there's lingering things with her. But, you know, she's come to expect and understand some of those limitations and still trying to work through them. But her health is, is great. Luke came in like a wrecking ball, and he is, a, he is the happiest kid you'll ever meet. And he says to me often and says to his mom often, be happy, mom. Yeah. You make my heart happy, mom. So there's a kid who really just is filled with love, and I think it's because he was surrounded by love the first month of his life, people praying and, and helping him to survive. Michael, this whole story is, 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 is traumatic even to listen to. But um, It is, yeah. <laughs> uh, tell us, you know, the big things that need to change the big things that you see that could prevent somebody else having the same experience. And I think there's things to change in, in multiple areas, but where do you see the big things to change? Um, I think we need to get a better handle on maternal care in the country. Obvious too, you know, just the way we pay for care, our health insurance system is, is an absolute nightmare and mess. And uh, as much time as I spent with on the phone with doctors and nurses and in meetings with them during her care, I spent a 10% of that time on the phone with health insurance company representatives who were repeating things back to me and then making me try to tell them what's happening next. And I felt like that was a huge breakdown because I'm a layman and I'm definitely not getting terminology right. Why are they asking me these questions that could be just be talking to the professionals at the hospital about Serena's case and her file? Uh, so that's that's definitely a situation. I think... I, there's something missing about patient advocacy um, in the hospital. There were people who took it upon themselves personally because they're incredible human beings to advocate for Serena, for Luke, and for me. And when they would see our family in that waiting room hour upon hour, sleeping on chairs for three weeks and you know, dozens of people coming in to give her gifts and wish her well once she was awake, and off the intubation, um, it, it further reinforced how important it was to save this woman's life. So what I think you said, which is really powerful right there, is, is patient advocacy can move things that other advocacy can't. For sure. I could have kept everybody out of the hospital and been a lonely husband sitting in that waiting room 
And I don't think that would have saved Serena's life. I think that number of people who were there with me, their tears, their love, their belief, uh, even their expressions of faith in a very human way, seeing different people come into Serena's room and want to pray for her and pray with her. For some of the doctors and nurses, that was an impact for them. They, you know, on a very human and emotional way, it took all the science out of it for a moment and said, this is just love. This is, this is human connection. And so I, th- I think what you're saying is that you were, you were speaking to people in, in different languages, if you will. You were speaking science when you could. You were speaking policy when you needed to. You were also speaking on the spiritual side. Uh, is definitely something that one of the nurses said to me is how impressed she was that I could sit with the doctors and listen to this very technical briefing. Then I would leave the briefing and I would go sit with the family and I would translate it for them in terms they can understand. And then I would say, how did I do? And nurses would be like, I can't believe you just did that. That skill alone in a hospital is power and doesn't exist for every family who's here. And we ought to find a way to make that happen so that there's a translator between the medical professionals and the families who, you know, I have family members who are very working class and they want to tell you, here's how you save your life. And you can walk them through why that's not going to work or why I've already tried that. But um, so that's missing. You also have to have the courage to, you know, I know from experience with other loved ones who've been in the hospital, people don't always have the courage to ask tough questions of people in the medical field or administrators because they feel like there's a gap in knowledge or expertise. Well, Michael, I, I really appreciate your coming here and sharing such a powerful but painful story with us. Um, it really is, we're deeply grateful for that. I wonder if there's anything else that you'd like to share with the listeners that we haven't had a chance to get to yet? It's a good question. Um, you know, when you are someone who is having to act on behalf of your spouse or your loved one, you've got to find a way to have a, a strong network to get your back and hold you up because, you know, I, I, I'm always someone who kind of believes and feels like, there's, you know, you can do anything if you put your mind to it. But, boy, that was put to the test in 2017 for me personally. Right. And I, I think this is, you know, it's also a very relevant conversation in the context of COVID. Not that you had an experience with COVID, but helping people understand that when you have a prolonged ICU stay, um, it will take a very long time. It will take months, perhaps years, to fully recover, not only for the patient, but for the family who experiences that as well. So I think it'll help us to be mindful of that. Well, Michael, thanks for a great conversation. Yeah, thank you, Michael. That was fabulous. I really enjoyed it, guys. That was a hard story to hear. Um, And it is, I can imagine, an unbelievably hard experience to live through. But there are a couple things that, for me, came through really powerfully. And the first one was that doctors and nurses who took care of her were incredibly devoted to their patients. Mm-hmm. And also that hospitals don't freely collaborate with one another. Uh, they're siloed and there's a lot of things happening individually in individual hospitals. Yeah. And, and, you know, the, the interesting thing was that um, our, our payment system doesn't allow for that free collaboration and doesn't, it, you know, needs to make it easier for both 
patients and doctors to get the care patients need. Mm-hmm. I think one of the other really key things was that um, patients are distressed about care teams that don't have time to explain what's happening. And those of us who work in clinical medicine know that that's a really common occurrence happening all the time. Right. And it, it's something that Elena Perea in the last episode brought up as being really important to her that she protect her patients from that experience of the pressure that she feels in in navigating clinical medicine and getting her patients the care they need. Right. And one of the things you and I have talked about a lot in the past, Wendy, is the idea of clinicians and patients starting to work together, starting to be a team and trying to try and fix some of these things. And, and I think Michael said that several times and really brought that up and emphasized it, how important that teamwork was and that collaboration was between patients and clinicians. I think it's important for us to, to, for both patients and clinicians to start approaching this problem from both sides and asking for change um, because we're both working to the same goal, which is to make sure the patient gets the best care possible. Exactly. Well, thank you for joining us on Moral Matters. You can continue the conversation on our website, fixmoralinjury.org, on Facebook at Moral Injury of Healthcare, on Instagram at Moral Injury, or Twitter at WDNMD and Simon Tablet MD. If you're listening to the podcast, please subscribe to the upcoming episode, rate us online and review it so it's easier for others to find us. And finally, if you're looking for end of year giving ideas, please consider a donation to help support the podcast and the rest of our work at Moral Injury of Healthcare. And donating in the name of your favorite healthcare worker is a great gift as well. So join us next time. We'll be speaking with Carlina Rivera. She is a member of the New York City Council. We'll talk to her about how, as chairwoman of the hospital subcommittee, she confronted the first surge of the coronavirus that devastated the city in the spring of 2020. Join us next time.